So we are in Philippians 2, and I intended to look at Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and I had to, like, like a good Earl Grey tea, it takes time to steep, and so we're going to split it in half. We're going to hit 5 through 11 next week. And so we're just going to look at the first four verses of chapter 2 in Philippians this morning. And so this, this passage, these verses, what we have looked at from chapter 1 last week, what we looked at chapter 1-6 a few weeks ago, it's pushing us to the reality of the unity in God's church, of how God has saved people from a variety of places and brought them together by His blood, by the blood of Christ, that they would be one people under one baptism, under one Lord, in one following the one Savior Christ in order to produce and bring about and share the one gospel to save the world. And so as we see in Philippians, in this church that is full of conflict and has issues as Paul is writing to them and telling them, get over these things because this is not what God has put you here to do. To fight over whatever it is. We don't know what it is uh, that, that he has mentioned several times between a few of the ladies in church and some other things going on. But essentially there is conflict that is providing, that is causing disunity and brokenness within the fellowship of the saints. And so Paul has told them, and it's culminating here in chapter 2, and it continues on, but especially these first 11 verses put some really solid foundation of why. Why should we strive for unity? Why should we strive as a people of faith to be a people of faith rather than arguing for our place and position and jockeying for attention and praise and accolades, but instead be a people of faith to serve one another? Why is that? And as we will see in these verses, it is because of the God that has brought us together. It is because of Christ that we willingly sacrifice of ourselves. We lay aside our rights and privileges in order to serve somebody else. Not because in serving a need of ours would be met, but because that is what Christ has done for us. That is what the Son of God did in taking flesh upon Him, laying aside the splendor and majesty and right to be served in order to serve others. And so that's next week. But essentially, this is what he is getting us into in chapter 2. Of that as he is in prison, awaiting, giving a witness to uh, Caesar, that he is looking at the end of his life and he says, make my joy complete by being unified. By being of the same mind, sharing the same love after the same thing. So, there's a story. Leo Tolstoy, uh, who wrote a story, a short story called uh, The Three Hermits. Anybody heard it? Fantastic. Let me summarize it for you. It's not quite short, but I'm going to shorten it and summarize it. So, this guy, this bishop, hops on a boat. He's traveling to a, to a monastery and is, is going to this place that has relics and things. And so, on this boat, there are other pilgrims who are there with him, and so he is shrouded and gets on the boat, hops on it, and goes along. And so as he, as he camps out on this boat to go to this place, he notices some different pilgrims around there, different, different folks in their piety who are, who are traveling. And then he notices as he's going and enjoying the sun, enjoying the, the weather in, this, in this, uh, this travel, this journey, he notices there's an old sailor over on the corner, by some guys and they're pointing and looking off in the distance and he's he's a bishop he 
reads. And so um, <laughs> he's nearsighted, not farsighted anymore. And so that's not in the story. So he, um, he, they, he doesn't see what, what they're pointing at and talking about. And he, he saddles over there and, and starts to listen. And as he listens, the guy who's telling the story, pointing off, talking about something, he, he stops, stands up, takes his hat off, and everybody looks around, and they, they do the same in honor for this bishop. Just keep going, keep going. Keep, keep telling me, t- talking about what you're talking about. I don't see anything over there. What, what are you talking about? And so he starts telling him what's happening, that there's this island over here, that there are three hermits, three, three men who live on this island by themselves, who are there in order to, to know God. They are holy men who who are at this place, and I've heard my whole life these stories of these guys, but I've never, I've never seen them. And last year I was, I was able to, to, to see them and meet these guys as my ship shipwrecked on, on this place and was able to meet them. And, and these are the three guys. They're three really old guys. That One of them is this short guy who, who, um, who just really old, his beard's so long and old and gray is turned into green because stuff's growing on it. And this other one who's really tall and just incredibly strong as, as he's telling this story, uh, I get on this island in my boat, he just picks it up like a pail and turns it over and they, they go to work to try to help me uh, to, to fix this boat and get going. And the last one who, who's this really teeny tiny old guy, uh, who they're all old, but even older than the other two, he, he goes to work and is just this little old frail guy. And, and they, all, they all set me right and send me on. And they don't talk. They don't talk to me and they're just, they're just there. And it's like, wow, this bishop is thinking, this is incredible. I, I, would, I would love to go see these guys. And so as he's talking, telling the story, this island, this little tiny sliver shows up. And, and the bishop says, I would love to go meet these guys. Is there any way that we can do this? And I don't know, go to the captain. And the captain says that, this, this is going to delay us big time. This is just going to set us, uh, set us aside. We can't get to it. We're going to have to hop in a rowboat and go out there. And so it's just going to delay this trip. And the bishop says, well, I've got money. I'll take care of it to make it worth your while. And I just, I've got to go meet these guys and see if I can teach them something. See if there's something that I can impart and, and meet them and see if I can serve these, uh, these, these hobbit guys over there on this island by themselves. And so that's not in the story either. Gosh, I'm making stuff up now. So they, he, he convinces the captain, they stop, row over there, and just as the story told, there are these three guys on the, on the beach. And so as he approaches and gets off and, and comes to these men, starts talking to them, and he asks them, I hear you're here to know the Lord. What? What do you what do you know? What how is how is God saving you? What is God bringing grace into your life? And and they look at him and and like what like look at him and then say, well, how do you how do you know how to pray? Do you know how to pray? And like, oh yes, we know how to pray, and we we know how to pray. We say we say you three are ye, we are three. Have mercy on us. And so as as the bishop he hears this and. Oldest one says this, and then the other two follow suit. They look up. Three are ye. We are three. Have mercy on us. The bishop's like, no, 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 no. That's not how to pray. That is, that's not right. Men, you don't, you don't pray like that. God has taught us how, how to pray. And so the bishop goes to tell them that you, you pray by saying, 
our Father. And so he tells them, our Father. And they, they have to, they repeat. The first one says, our Father. The second one, third. They both repeat just fine. And so he works with them on this and says, our Father who art in heaven. And, and, uh, and then they repeat again. And then the second one struggles a little bit with it. And the fourth one, he, his beard's so long and it's over his mouth and it's getting stuck in there. And the second one has no teeth, so he struggles too. And so the bishop essentially spends the entire day until the sun's going down, it's getting late, spends the entire day teaching these men the Lord's Prayer. And so he imparts to them, he's got them all saying it at the end of the day, and has taught these men the Lord's Prayer, that they know it and can repeat it, and they're rejoicing. It's a wonderful thing. And so the bishop and the captain hop back in the boat and row out uh, it at, with, as the moon has come out and the sun's gone down and it's late. They hop back on the boat. The bishop is watching the guys as they go and they are, they're repeating. He can hear them all the way to the boat, repeating the Lord's Prayer. And so he is, he's, he's happy. He's happy at what he's been able to teach these guys. And so as they, as they go off, uh, he loses sight and everybody goes to sleep and the bishop sits on the boat in the in the stern of the boat and watches the island disappear and is just conscious of this, of what has happened and what he, is, what he is able to teach these men and impart. And he sees something. He sees something back there and it's, it's right over the horizon, this little blip of like light over there. And what's going on? What? Like the moon's over here, he's seeing this, what's happening? And then as he watches, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Then he goes to the helmsman who is piloting the boat and says, what's this thing over here? And, and they watch it as it gets closer and closer. The helmsman gets terrified and more and more terrified as this thing gets larger and is catching them on the water. And then he sees that all of a sudden, there are the three hermits walking on water out to the bishop, running running on water to, to him. And they pull up aside, up aside the boat and, the, and they're like, bishop, we, we forgot. We were fine as long as we repeated it, then we stopped, and now we've forgotten it. We've all messed it up. We don't know it anymore. We don't know what this, the, the Lord's Prayer is anymore. And the bishop looks at him and says, I think you're, I think you're holy enough. You're okay. Just pray as, as you will. And then they say, okay. And they just run back across the water. So, the moral of the story. The moral of the story is the pride this bishop displays as he, he in pride thinks, I'm going to impart something to these guys. And as then they come, just walking, running across the water, <laughs> like it's nothing. It's made up, completely made up. And so the, the illustration is of pride, of pride in what he does not realize and recognize in these three hermits, in what they say, in the structure of what they say. If they don't see it, he doesn't see it, he doesn't understand it. And that he misses the reality of what is in front of him. Of what he, in his religiosity, in his activity, would break up and divide. And so God has brought his church into harmony because Christ is such. And so in Philippians 2, read with me. As it says in verse 1, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not on to, look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as Paul opens, he's connecting to previous things said. As he says, therefore, what he has built up in chapter 1, he is then culminating here. He is bringing this together of this is why. This is why you are to strive together to seek uh, peace with one another that the truth of God, that His Word, what He has done, should remove divisions and conflicts in a congregation, but it should be healed and thus affected because of Christ and who He is. So, Paul pinpoints this issue is that no person is an island to themselves, just protecting their own waters and, and taking care of, of what's around them to the exclusion of others. In that selfishness, selfishness, Will, will, will work within a people to fracture and to cause problems and harm. And so Paul, as he says, if here, as he says, if in verse 1, so if there is, he's not saying if as in this is a question, as in this is a question if this is really true. He's saying if that it is true, that this is, the assumption is that this is very true. Call this to question. See this is in your experience will verify the reality that there is encouragement in Christ. And so that word encouragement specifically means to come alongside of. It's a connected word with the word used to describe the Holy Spirit, the helper who would come. That the encouragement to come alongside, to encourage, to build up, to carry along, to meet needs. It's this word that we see in John 14. If we go to John 14... 15 says, if you love me, Jesus speaking, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That word helper, the Holy Spirit, it's a connected word here for the encouragement of coming alongside, of being beside and helping along, of encouraging according to the, the words spoken, of standing and abiding. The incarnate Savior has brought about a reality in the church that the Holy Spirit is with His people, is beside and carrying along His people to in words and in deeds and that we see in the latter half of this portion of Scripture that Jesus supports people. Jesus came to save humanity. He came to save people. He didn't come as something else. He didn't come as a frog. He didn't come as an as a, a apex predator. He came as a person. He came as a human. He took humanity upon Himself to serve people, to encourage and to be alongside His people. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, 
if Christ has provided, which He has, encouragement and coming alongside, uh, and next, the comfort from love, the consolation from God and that His love gives. This, this word is the word that is used in our memory verse from last month in, uh, in Psalm 94 about how the cares, when they, the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. It's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that the consolations of God, that He consoles, that He is, he is with His people and cares for His people. That He cares for them in His love. Literally, this word means close words with an intimate friend. So someone who is intimately close. A relationship with someone. It is that near words that encourage, that build up, that express His love. And so God is near His people by the Spirit that encourages them and also expresses and speaks His Word in love to His people. It's incredible that Christ accepts sinful people. That God has come in order to redeem people like me, like you. That He has come that that then He will intercede and be with and draw us and build His people up. God's love for His people. It's a true consolation in times of need and in times of blessing that He has loved us. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He so loved His people, He gave of Himself. The Son was given in order to bring life, in order to forgive, in order to restore people by His grace. His love brings comfort but it also motivates for unity. That the love that He has given us, the encouragement that He brings to His people, it encourages, but it also motivates His people towards unity. Next, participation in the Spirit. So we see if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit. The word participation, the term is not participate like you would go play a sport but participate as in fellowship. The word specifically is for an association, a fellowship, a community of close and intimate association, a partnership. That the word for partnership, for coming alongside, for being with and going a direction together. That if there's participation, if there's partnership in the Spirit, This glorious gift that Christ gives His people, His followers, the abiding reality of the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is with people, is with His people, is within you. If we go back to those verses in John 14, where Jesus says here, He says that the Spirit of truth, the Helper who will come to you, who dwells with you and will be in you. That this incredible promise that the Spirit is with His people. Not to leave His people, but to be with the church. To work within His people in order to to draw them together, to unify them, but also in order to prove what He has done for them. If we go to Ephesians 1, 14 and 15 says this, in Ephesians 1, in Him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
and believed Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Upon belief, when you trust in Christ, the Spirit comes and seals you. When God comes to save people, the Spirit brings it and affects you such that what was dead is now alive because the Spirit has come in and brought, brought the dead soul to life through the forgiveness of sin and the application of what Christ has done on your behalf. So the Spirit seals believers, puts a stamp on them as a promise As a promise that even though what looks like in our lives, even though our experience differ, our experiences differ, and even though it may, our circumstances may be terrible, that the Spirit, if you are in Christ, has sealed you, that there is a promise that what He has started will be completed, that the outcome of your life will be salvation, it will not be being jettisoned and left to your own devices and thrown away. But if you are in Christ, that He has sealed you by His Spirit in promise that you are His and you will remain His and He will be with you and carry you and present you before the Father right because of the blood of Christ. And so, the Spirit seals of what has not been acquired yet of what will occur to the praise of the glory of God. And also, the Holy Spirit empowers Look at Acts 1.8. You're probably familiar with it as it says, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit empowers His people. Fills His people with, with encouragement, with authority, with power to do what God has set His people to do and to know He is there. Let's finish up this verse. Lastly, it says that any, uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any persuasion of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Affection's a fun word. It's splachna. And it's a word that directly means the bowels. And it, it, it carried the meaning of that it is the, the foundation of where feeling is. That deep within your bowels, deep in, in all the feelings that you have affection for. And so it's saying that God has affection for His people. That deep within the emotional recesses of where it comes from, that He has affection and care and concern for His people and sympathy for them. So both are present for the Christian. That God has given affection and sympathy to the struggling human, to the struggling believer. Jesus came and took flesh And He suffered. He suffered through life in your experience and my experience. That He suffered so that He knows where you are. He has been there. And even to a greater extent. That as we have caved to temptation as we have before us an opportunity to obey and to follow but instead tend to fall off and disobey and succumb to temptation, Jesus outlasted it. He withstood it to its terminus. He has suffered and lived a human life yet without sin. Therefore, what encouragement He gives us. What sympathy that He has upon His poor weary followers who struggle and have 
difficulty and toil through life that Jesus has been there. Jesus has been there and yet without sin, He is sympathetically there to help us. Now, verse 2. All all these qualities, all these things we see, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, Paul then says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That these qualities here in verse 1, these qualities speak of a relationship. That I hope it's clear the tenderness and the, the emotion that is within each of these that reveal the reality of a relationship. That what Paul is saying here is that these qualities exhibit a relationship with the Lord in Christ. That these qualities come out of one's right standing with God because of Christ, of that genuine work of God within the life of the believer and within the church. That the, the, the mindfulness, the mutual love, the harmonious accord comes from this relationship. Comes from this. And so can you ID this in your life? Can you see this in your life? Do you see these things? Have you experienced God like this? That He has had sympathy upon you. He has been patient with you. He has been kind with you. Have you seen the encouragement in Christ that He has brought encouragement and come alongside you with words of mercy and words of grace? Have you seen Him comfort you from His love for you? Do you see the love of God in your life that is brought about by Christ? Participation, fellowship with the Spirit. That these things, this empowering with the Spirit, the the unity that the Spirit brings upon those who are His, have you experienced these things? Do you see those in your life? Have you seen such things, the ministry of Christ, by the Holy Spirit in your life. Paul is reminding the Philippians, and I hope we will be reminded too, of what God has done for us. Reminded in his word of the experiences recorded there, but then also the personal experiences of knowing God and that these things in covenant relationship with God that are given to his people are reminded of what he has done for his church. That then, as he gives us instruction in verses 3 and 4, we have hearts to receive it. Because there's not much room in the instruction given us to deviate. So recall, recall times. If there is a deficit from this in your life, recall times where God has been here. Recall times in Scripture where you see this and prayerfully seek the Lord. Turn your attention to God in His Word. Turn your attention to His promises that who He is would be who you know Him to be. Complete my joy, Paul says in verse 2, by being of the same mind. It's interesting. Where is Paul? Where's Paul? He's in prison. Yes, he's in prison. Why didn't he say, guys, come break me out? I know when, when, when a shift change is. And you know that guy, Robert, who, who over there in Philippi who got saved, you know what he used to do? He used to pick locks. He's got some skills. Send him along. Why didn't he say that? 
What you can do for me is break me out. That's not what he says. As we established in chapter 1, his joy is that Christ would be known. His joy is that the gospel would be seen. That Christ would be exalted and glorified. That is his joy. His joy is that these people in Philippi, this church, would be healthy. Would be restored. Would be reunited. And that they would grow in harmony and unity as God has set them to do. His joy is not that he would be free. His joy is that Christ would be glorified in these people. Be glorified in these people, in them being together, them being of one mind, the same mind. So this this term for mind, of being of the same mind, is an active striving for genuine agreement. It is the activity of developing an attitude that's based on careful thought. So it's not agreeing on all things, but it is striving and being active, working that you would have harmony in your thoughts, in your desires, in your direction. So it includes attitude and intention. That your intentionality, that you are active in it, but that also the desires, the the attitude is peaceable and humble and that it is mutual. What Paul is not saying is that we ignore differences and we strive to just just self-deceive that everything would be okay. That we just we we provide a polished picture where we can say some small talk and everybody's happy, but uh, but as long as the small talk's there and the face is 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 pretty and happy, that uh, that then everything's fine. That's the harmony. That's the unity that we're talking about. That's of the same mind. It's not what he means. It's far deeper. It's far deeper. It is an active work that our hearts and our minds, our lives would be on the same direction, the same path, that we would share the same ultimate goal. The same ultimate goal in what we are here to do. What His people are here to do. It is active. It includes those things. That seeking and striving to harmonize our minds with what God has done. Recall James 4 as as James tells the people to draw near to God, submit to God, and draw near to Him that He will draw near to you. That it is an active effort to seek the Lord, to seek that our minds, our thoughts, would be His. That we would be sanctified from things that would divide and remove us from fellowship with one another in order to be harmonized with God that then would affect us together. And so we have Romans 8. Let's read Romans 8 real quick. And look at these verses. It says, for those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Unity of mind is where our minds are set on God rather than self. Where the minds of his people are set on the Lord and what he has done and what he is doing rather than me, what I am doing, what is good for me, and what, what is self-advantageous, what is preferential. It is striving to see Christ and to make him known in that being the goal that overwhelms the self. 
that Christ is exalted and known overwhelms the self-centeredness. And so having the same love, having the same desire, again, this is not a love of just feeling. This is not just a love of fuzziness and, and squishy things. This is an active pursuit of, of bringing oneself in line with how God has loved us. With the love of the Spirit, the love that Christ has given us, that bringing us in line with these, that we would love one another and not then act out of selfish ambition. Verse 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. He corrects these folks here. Stop the selfishness. It's pretty exclusive. Do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing. Not some things, not 95% of things, not almost all. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. It's not hard to figure out what selfish ambition is. We can see it all over the Scripture, let alone in our own lives and around us. But this is like Simon the magician in Acts who, who comes to the disciples as they are going, the apostles are going and teaching and healing, and he sees this, that the Spirit is given as they lay their hands on believers, and the new believers receive the Spirit. And he goes to them and says, hey, I, I want that. Give me that. Give me that ability. That this selfish ambition of having this authority and power for himself so he can go continue his magic. This is the sons of thunder who come to Jesus and say, give us a place of honor. I want to sit there and there when you come into your kingdom. That this, this ambition to care for oneself, this, the Pharisees, those noisy Pharisees who go about praying loudly that people would see them, would see their piety and reverence them over God. This selfish ambition... He tells us to do nothing out of this. May this not be who we are. Speaking for myself, this is frequently who I am. And I imagine we could echo all that. That frequently selfish ambition is what, what paints our days. What, what we act upon. And these things come from a heart of pride that prizes self over the Savior. That prizes what is good for me and what I think is right over who Christ is and what He has done. He tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility, in reverence, honor others as more important than yourselves. Regard other people as more important than yourselves. Don't only look out for your own interests, but also the interests of other people. Not serving others that you would be served, but serving others fully and completely regarding their interests as more valuable. To cut to the chase, what we see is that this is how Jesus has served us. The reason for this is not because this quells arguments and makes people happy. The reason for this is because this is how Christ has served you and me. And that the Son did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He did not maintain His place of, of honor to be served, but He laid it aside, adding to Himself humanity. 
limited humanity in order to serve. In order to serve you and me. God Himself took on created flesh in order to redeem, in order to save, in order to pay a debt that was not His, but was ours to pay. He came and took our sin upon Himself. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The reason why He tells us to do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit is because this is who Christ is. This is who our Savior is, who has given His life that we would be saved, that we would be encouraged, we would be loved, we would be near to Him and abide in Christ by the Spirit because of His great and abundant love for us and what He has done on the cross on our behalf. And so then to approach one another with what can, what can you do for me is such, such the wrong attitude. It is missing the reality of what Christ has done for you. It is missing the reality, the humility of what Christ has done. Romans 5, 8, for God shows His love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Christ came willingly and intentionally to give His life that we would be saved. Therefore, strive for unity. Strive to agree Not to get things out of people, but in order to serve because Christ has served you. Be encouraged by the love God has given you in Christ. Do you know that love? Do you know that He has loved you and given Himself for you? Do you know this to be true in your life? That He has done this for you. That all who would call upon Him would be saved. Turning from sin and self to trust fully in Him. Is this true in your life? Have you done this? Is the the terms in verse 1, does this describe your relationship with the Lord? That Christ has, He is near to you. He is encouraging you. Yet you have seen His love and that you are fellowshipping with the Spirit and that He has poured out sympathy and compassion upon you. Have you seen this? Is this who God is in your life? It is only true for those who are in Christ. It is only true for those who have been incorporated into His family by the blood of Christ who have trusted their lives to the Savior. Have you trusted Him? And then, are you ordering your life after the instruction He has given us? Let's pray. Father God, I thank You. God, I thank You for Your Word and Your faithfulness that, Lord Jesus, You came to seek and to save the lost. You came to give Your life, to give us not only a moral example, but also to produce and to bring about the reality of the precious blood of the Savior who would atone for our sins. It is only in what He has done that we have hope. It is only in what Christ has done many, many years ago at once as He as He laid His life down for the redemption of humanity, of Your people, that we have hope eternal. God, I thank You for so much of these promises that You are with us. That You are with us to the end. That You will carry us through. That You empower Your people 
to go to the world with the gospel, that you fill us with your spirit and your truth to encourage and to build and to edify and to unite in such a way that displays this is an otherworldly group because God is with us, because the Son is here. God, would you help us? Would you help your people here? Would you help this church, God? That, Lord, we would do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but that, Lord, we would regard one another as more important than ourselves. And, and that, Lord, we would seek to serve one another as You, Lord Jesus, has served us. And so, Father, would You draw us, God, before You. That, Lord, our lives would be consecrated to You, given and surrendered to You, that You, Lord, would be Lord in our lives personally and vividly seen to the world around us. We thank you and ask all these things in the name of yourself.